Good morning. Well, let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we ask that your presence will be with us today. As we discuss good thinking, we ask that the heavenly light will shine upon our minds and that our, our thoughts will be towards you and we will have clarity in our understanding of your word. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number six in our quarterly, Jesus Wept, the Bible and Human Emotions, and the title this week is Good Thinking. And boy, do we have a lot to cover in today's lesson. There is so much to go through. Somebody read for us our memory text, which is Philippians 4.8, please. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And, and does it matter what we think about? I mean, it's a rhetorical question. Uh, today we're going to go through and hopefully we'll give some insights in how much it really does matter. Uh, first paragraph, Sabbath lesson, which begins as one of. Somebody read that for us. It's one of the most utilized forms of mental health intervention today. Cognitive behavioral therapy is based on the assumption that most psychological problems are improved by identifying and changing inaccurate and dysfunctional perceptions, thoughts, and behaviors. People with depression tend to interpret facts negatively. People with anxiety tend to look at the future with apprehension. Those with low self-esteem maximize others' successes and minimize their own. Cognitive behavioral therapy, therefore, trains people to identify and change their unhealthy thinking habits into better alternatives that promote the desirable behavior and eliminate unwanted ones. As you read this, did you think of any Bible passages that support this process? This idea of changing one's thoughts. As a man thinks so. think in his heart, so is he. Oh, that's a good one. Others? 2 Corinthians 3.18. Behold, we are changed. By beholding, we are changed. Oh, that's another good one. Others? I like both. Those are very good. So the heart, the mouth speaks. In the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay. And how about uh, Jesus' uh, words in John 8, 31 and 32? If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciple. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You notice all these texts that were mentioned, plus this, has to do with what we think and what we hold to be true. Did you notice what Jesus said, though? If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciple. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Did you you notice the, the relationship there? Holding to the teaching, and then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So what does it mean to hold to the teaching? Uh, This is out of uh, seven uh, manuscript releases, page um, 353, and it says, As a people, we are to make an entire surrender of ourselves to God. God calls upon every church member to enter his service. Now this is where it gets interesting. Truth that is not lived, that is not imparted to others, loses its life-giving power, its healing virtue. If you hold to the truth, then you will know the truth. If you hold to the teaching, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, can we know the truth if we don't apply it to our lives? Can you know what it's like to swim if you never get in the water? Even if you study at at university swimming? If you study the mechanics and physics of, of swimming, will you know what it is to swim if you never get in the water? If you watch every uh, Olympic swimming meet, will you know what it is to swim if you don't get in the water? How about, will you know how refreshing a slice of watermelon is on a hot summer day if you never eat a slice? Or, will we know the truth and be set free by it if we never apply it to our lives and live it out? Yes? The text that comes to mind is, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I'm meek and lowly, and you'll find rest for your souls. So, application, taking it upon us, doing it. So is there a difference between knowing about, say, swimming, and knowing how to swim? Is there a difference between knowing about the truth and actually knowing the truth? Yeah. So let's, let's, uh, does it make a difference to your brain to know about the things, study things, or actually participate in them. Let's take swimming, for example. What happens to your brain when you move from observing swimming, studying swimming, and actually get into the water? What happens in your brain? 
Well, first, your prefrontal cortex has to initiate the thought to activate the motor cortex of your brain to, um, to initiate the movement. And then the motor cortex will send... And I, by the way, I called my friend Brad Cole, neurologist at uh, Loma Linda last night, to make sure I had all this right. So we're in good shape. Um, to, uh, so then the motor cortex will activate... Uh, two pathways, spinal, spinal, uh, the corticospinal tracts, which send the signal down to the muscles to activate the muscles. But interestingly, it sends another signal, the motor cortex, to the cerebellum to tell the cerebellum what the anticipated and expected movement is going to be. And then, um, the, once the m- muscles move and your, and your arm or legs move, a signal goes back to the cerebellum telling the cerebellum where, the, uh, where your appendage actually moved. So the cerebellum gets a signal of where you're supposed to move, and then gets the signal of where you actually moved, compares the two, and then sends a signal back to the motor cortex. So the motor cortex evaluates, did I move where I said I was going to move where I intended to move? And then that sends another signal back correcting to make sure that you moved where you wanted to move in the first place. All this is happening in milliseconds. Isn't that fina- fascinating? And, and with, each, with each one of these processes, and I wrote down the spinal pathways and the, uh, and the brain pathways in the notes for those who are interested in all those technical terms. So you have this pathway of information going on. When you make the decision in your mind, you activate all these circuits, and then um, as you continue to do this and exercise these circuits, these circuits get stronger. This is what's called building motor memory. If any of you have learned how to ride a bike... Okay, in the beginning it was hard. You had losing balance. But as you've learned to do that, this whole process of what I was just going through happened. And as you've done this, it recruited more neural circuits to build a pathway now that even if you haven't ridden a bike for years and you go back to get on a bike, it's fairly easy to do because you've established a certain neural circuit that corresponds with that ability to do that behavior. Your brain is rewiring based on the choices you make. Well, the cerebellum, which coordinates smooth motor movement, also, in the central aspect of the cerebellum, coordinates your thoughts. So it helps you keep organized thoughts. So getting in the water and swimming changes motor circuits, helps you coordinate, uh, and helps you ultimately develop better thinking patterns. But at the same time, if you actually exercise and get in the water and swim, you will activate neurotrophic factors and vascular factors. These are like fertilizer for your neurons, which your, your, uh, your neurons will branch out and make new connections, and your brain will make new neurons, and you'll increase vascularization to the, to the brain, and you will produce endorphins and enkephalins, which will help your mood and, and improve your mood, which give you a more hopeful and optimistic outlook in life. And you will exercise the muscles, obviously, which will increase the strength of the muscles, the ligaments, tendons, and, and bone. So you actually get physically stronger. Does it make a difference? to study about swimming and to actually get in the water and swim. It's a huge difference. How about, with this in mind, I'm going to read you a couple passages from Ellen White, and then we're going to come back to the application of truth to our mind. This is what she says out of uh, In Heavenly Places 183. Progression, not stagnation, is the law of heaven. You know, people like to talk about laws. Think about how we, we often think of laws. There's that enacted law, set of rules we have to obey. Think, think of how she describes laws in these passages. Pro- progression, not stagnation, is the law of heaven. Progression is the law of every faculty of mind and body. The things of nature obey this law. In the field there is first seen the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. In the spiritual life, as in the physical life, there is to be growth. Step by step, we are to advance, ever receiving and imparting, ever gaining a more complex knowledge of Christ, daily approaching more closely the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, does this sound like an imposed law, a set of rules you have? Or does this sound like some natural process of development? Or this is out of the Spalding Magnum Collection. How many has heard of that? The Spalding Magnum Collection. Yeah, uh, page 40. The world today is full of pain and suffering and agony. But it is the will of God that such a condition, but is it the will of God that such a condition exists? No. God, the creator of, our, creator of our bodies, has arranged every fiber and nerve and sinew and muscle and has pledged himself to keep the machinery in order if the human agent will cooperate with him and refuse to work contrary to the laws which govern the physical system. God's law is written by his own finger upon every nerve, every muscle, every faculty which has been entrusted to man. These gifts were bestowed upon him not to be abused, corrupted, and abased, but to be used to his honor and glory. 
Every misuse of any part of our organism is a violation of the law which God has designed uh, shall govern shall govern us in these matters. And by violating this law, human beings corrupt themselves, sickness and disease and every of every kind, and ruin constitutions and so forth. <clears throat> what kind of a law does it sound like to you? That if you don't do things his way, he'll send angels down from heaven to make you sick? Is that what it sounds like? That if you don't, if you break his law, there'll be a, a, a you'll go to court and the ju- and the jury will evaluate you and they'll determine how sick you should be and how for how long. <clears throat> is that how it sounds to you? How about this one? <clears throat> this is out of Child Guidance, page three sixty three. As the foundation principle of all education in these lines, the youth should be taught that the laws of nature are the laws of God as truly divine as are the precepts of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The laws that govern our physical organism, God has written upon every nerve, fiber, muscle uh, of the body. Every careless and willful violation of these laws is a sin against our Creator. How necessary then that thorough knowledge of these laws be imparted. Is this, is, how, is this how you've thought of law and sin? How do you understand what's being described here? It's a consequence. It's a consequence. Does it go back to this, this idea of, of our thought processes? What do these passages mean in regard to our spiritual life? Is there a difference between the law that works on our physical and spiritual lives? Are they different laws? Or is it generally one grand law, the law of love, the design template for life? As you give of yourself, you get healthier and stronger. As you take for self and you're selfish, you damage and destroy. This is the principle. Does the brain respond differently, as we said, to reading about swimming versus swimming? Then does the brain respond differently to studying about God's truth versus applying and living out that truth. Is there a difference? Yes. I think there's a great parallel here between, for example, in Scripture when it talks about the Gentiles doing by nature those things required by the law, uh, those who actually get in the water and swim, even though they have no concept of the mechanics or the physics or the mathematics of swimming, versus the Pharisees who knew all the details about swimming but never got in the water. Uh, well said. Well said. Does that make sense to you all? Yeah, these are the, the students of the law were the ones who would study all the physics and stuff about swimming, but they never would get in the water. And those who had never heard anything about it but learned how to swim. And, the, and what would be metaphorically spiritual swimming? What does it look like? What's the actual application to our metaphor? Loving others more than yourself. There you go. Loving others. As you, as you have done it under the one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. There's a hand over here somewhere. I was going to say exactly the same thing Russell said. Wow, great minds think alike. How about that? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Okay, so when we choose to live a life of love, of beneficence, of giving, when we're honest, when we're kind, when we're patient, when we're gentle, when we're loyal, when we're faithful, does this have a different neurobiologic consequence to our brain than if we lie, if we cheat, if we exploit, if we abuse, if we uh, gossip, if we, if we do all these things? Do, is there different, does different things happen in our brain? Yeah, think about this. Let's say, uh, in, in any level, let's say you're cheating at school. Let's say you're stealing from your employer. Let's say you're cheating on your spouse. Let's, I mean, whatever it is, you're violating God's law of love. You're not giving to bless others. You're seeking for self, and you're exploiting another in some way. If you're doing one of those things, uh, let's say you're at work, you've been embezzling money for the last six months, and your, your boss um, needs help moving a couch in his office, and he sticks his head out and says, Hey, Joe, I need you right now. Come down to my office. What do you do? You've been stealing for six months from the employer. Yeah. Right? Oh, do you find out? Is there stress? Are you anxious? Are you worried? Yes, what's happening? Your fear circuits are constantly on edge because you have something to hide. You're worried, you're fearful, you're insecure. If those fear circuits are firing, it causes inflammation, it causes physical illness, it actually alters gene expression, you suppress neurotrophic factors, the brain doesn't grow in healthy ways. Even even worse, if you're violating your conscience and you're doing these things, um, your, your medial 
um, your ventral medial cortex right above the bridge of your nose and your orbital cortex become active, which actually impair the working of the dorsolateral cortex. That's where you reason and think, which means that when you have a guilty conscience, you can't think as clearly. Anybody ever noticed that before? I mean, you didn't need me to tell you that, did you? But when your conscience is guilty, you can't reason, you can't plow. Well, we actually have brain science to show this is true. The, the, where we strategize, plan, organize, it doesn't work as well when, when our consciences are guilty. Are there biological differences? Do our, does it make a difference to our brain? So can a person know the right doctrinal truth and still not know the truth? Those who put Christ on the cross, did they have trouble discerning which day of the week was the Sabbath? No. But did they know anything at all about the truth of the Sabbath? No. They didn't know the truth. And they weren't set free by it. Yes? It also goes back to the concept of where we hear about if there's one unconfessed sin, it obstructs us from coming to God. It's not a act that has not been confessed of, but it's a trait which we've been unwilling to give up. And think about that in your human, that's a great point, Wendell. Think about in your human relationships. You have one issue between you've done somebody wrong and you haven't made it right with them. But it's only one thing, but, but you still haven't made it right. Can you have real unity with that person or is it a barrier to that relationship. Even if the other person is gracious and forgiving and kind and loving, and maybe sometimes the more kind and loving and gracious they are to you, the harder it is for you to be close to them because it makes you feel so bad because you've been stealing from them or whatever it is. Isn't it true? Yeah. So yes, we can't have unity as long as there's one, uh, one sin that we continue to hold to and cherish. So why do people have problems in thinking? I thought maybe we'd go through some, some reasons why, since our, our lesson today is on good thinking, why do people have problems in thinking? And I, I, I thought I'd break down some of the reasons why. The most obvious reason, and the one we won't spend really much time on today, is physical defects of the brain. Things like Alzheimer's disease. When you've lost billions of neurons because of a disease, you have problems in thinking. Or this uh, congresswoman who just got shot in the head. Trauma to the brain. Now, she's recovering and doing phenomenally well, I understand. But there will be, tr there will be differences for the rest of her life. We will, I don't know what those differences will be because I haven't examined her, but she's had a bullet go through her brain. There will be differences. Trauma to the brain. Um, certain chromosomal and genetic abnormalities will impair people's brain development, so they will have lifelong problems from childhood, from birth on, in their ability to think. Toxins and poisons which damage the brain. Children who grew up in homes where there's high lead content, for instance, and they have lead poisoning, will actually have significant brain damage and have impairments in their ability to think. Mercury poisoning. The old Mad Hatters. You ever heard of the, the name Matt, Alice in Wonderland, the Mad Hatter? Why was the Hatter mad? Because in the old days, they would take felt and they would use liquid mercury, quicksilver, and they would rub it into the felt to make it stiff so they could make the hat stiff. And, uh, of course, all the Hatters went mad because the mercury would cause, was called uh, dementia. Um, and then, of course, drugs and alcohol. What do drugs and alcohol do to the physical tissues of the brain? They damage them, and, and uh, this will also alter things. So physical brain damage will cause thinking problems. But what about childhood experiences? Yeah, um, <clears throat> not even, but certainly abuse. Abuse is here, no question. You've been abused, it'll alter your thinking alter your neural development. Your brain circuitry changes if you're abused or not. Nurturing, a nurturing healthy environment will change the brain in healthy ways and you'll have a better advantage at thinking. There's no question. Um, how many of you in, in this room and, and for people listening outside of, of, uh, of North America, think of whatever uh, language you grew up in, but how many of you chose to speak English? You never did. Were you, were you born speaking English? Are you, are you genetically programmed to be English speakers? No, this is not biological. But when was the last time you get up in the morning and said, you know what I think? Um, today I'm going I'm to think in English. <laughs> it never occurs to you, does it? In fact, it would almost be impossible not to. It's so deeply ingrained into the fabric of our individuality, this language, that we do it automatically without thinking. Well, that's an example of things we can learn early in childhood 
that get deeply ingrained into the way we think, view, process, experience the world that we never question. We never, we never uh, assume there's anything wrong with it. It's just the way it always is. And so we can have distortions in thinking that we believe are normal, the way we view the world, that got uploaded into our, into our way of thinking about life early in childhood. And we continue to operate on that as if it's true, and it's not. I'll give an example that I didn't even know I had a problem with until I, I got married to Christy and she told me. Um, uh, yeah. They good wives, man. They help you help, help you fix things, right? And it has to do with this language. Where I grew up in the part of the world I grew up, there was a word everybody used. That's not, that's not a word. Now, I didn't know it wasn't a word because I learned to speak from listening to all those people around me and it became part of my language. And so I just... So um, the word was alls. Alls you got to do. <laughs> that's not a word, but I didn't know it. I got, I, and I used it, and, and I got married, and Chris said, that's not a word. I goes, yes it, yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. See, now I trust my wife. I love my wife, but that was so deeply wired into the way I think from my early childhood. It had never been questioned. I, I was completely blind to it. I had no awareness of that at all. She points it out to me. I still don't believe her. We have to go to a dictionary. <laughs> I have to get a dictionary. And in the dictionary, she's right. You know what? It's not a word. It took me three months to stop using that word after I was aware because it was so deeply wired in. This is a very simple example of how we can get thoughts or ideas deeply wired in that we never question. We have complete blindness to and we operate on as if it's true and it's not. It takes someone else sometimes to give us feedback. God's Word, of course, is a great source to give us feedback. Friends, family, um, sometimes a therapist can give us feedback. Childhood experiences. What if a child is indulged? No discipline, no boundaries. Uh, basically validated on every whim and want. Will they come to be an other-centered, loving, humble person? Or they think they really are something and they deserve everything that comes to them? Yeah, it will de- definitely change the way they, f- they, they view the world. What about learned distortion? So we've got de- brain damage, we've got childhood experiences. What about learned distortions? Things we're taught, like we evolved from apes. I mean, are, are millions of people being taught this in, in educational systems that we evolved from apes? Will that actually have an impact on how we view and see and think? How about... That survival of the fittest principle is normal and healthy rather than an infection that destroys. How about blacks and Jews are subhuman? Or women are subordinate and less valuable than men? How many people are genetically wired from birth to to believe these things? This is something taught later. This is learned. Can these learned distortions affect our thinking? You bet. You bet. How about self-deception? So we've got three, uh, brain damage, uh, childhood experiences, learned distortion, self-deception. In a relationship with somebody who is mistreating you, cheating, beating, whatever it might be, but you don't want to acknowledge it because you don't want to lose that person. So, well, he didn't really mean to. He just had a bad day. It was a bad day at the office. didn't really mean to hit me. You know how many people in relationships like this twist and make excuses to deceive themselves because they don't want to accept the reality that the person that's beating them doesn't love them. They want to believe they're loved. He really loves me. He didn't mean it. He loves me. Well, she didn't mean to cheat. She loves me. Self-deception because the truth to accept it would be uncomfortable and painful. Children do this all the time with parents who are mistreating them. You know, and it's a classic case, a child being abused by a parent. Social services will try to take the child. The child does not want to leave. Well, Daddy really loves me. Does he? Hmm. How about trusting others? Another reason why we have faulty thinking. Allowing others to examine the evidence and tell you what to think. We don't need to examine questions that prior generations of church leaders and theologians have already determined and answered for us, do we? Anyone heard that one? Recently? Yes. Yeah, so tr- prior church leaders and generations have already examined the truth and told us these are the things that are well established and believed. We don't need to question them. Well, in, interesting, the scripture doesn't teach that. Paul, in Romans 14, says that every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. That we are to evaluate everything for ourselves. Come and reason. 
God says in Isaiah. And examine the evidence. Be like the Bereans. Check everything out. Don't believe because someone else said so. Even a historian. Someone who was respected in the past. Oh, by the way, another form of self-deception. Addicts do it all the time. Um, I can handle it. I don't really have a problem. Uh, I've got, I, I, I can master this. I can get over it. I don't need help. Constant another form of self-deception. Or how about valuing your emotions and feelings over evidence and reason? If it feels right, it must be right. I've never felt so good about this person before. I've never felt like this before. This must be love. Now, those of us from more mature years can look back and remember some relationships where we had those strong feelings. And we look back and go, what was I thinking? <laughs> right? Come on. How many have had somebody you had those strong feelings for and you thought, that's the one? And you look back and they were not the one. Amen. Am I the only one in here? <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, feelings are very, very uh, powerful. And if we value feelings over evidence, we end up in, in, in very, very dysfunctional situations. Can you think of other ways people can get faulty thinking? You may be mentioned it, but chemicals or um, lack of various electronic mechanisms with our brains that lead to depression and yep. other things. Yeah, biological defects, right. Yeah, exactly. Not a physical defect, but <clears throat> biologic defects still. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very good. All righty. Um, bottom paragraph in, uh, in the lesson, on the Sabbath lesson, it says, This week, we'll look at some biblical truths that can help us gain control over our mental activity by allowing Christ to take charge of our minds. In what way is this healthy and appropriate? In what way is this, could this be understood that's not true? Is there a way that people could take that phrase, let Christ take charge of our minds, that's not true? What way is it true? What What does Christ want to take charge of? Does he want to take charge like a physician takes charge of a sick patient? He wants to take charge of the healing process, of the recovery, of the restoration, of the rebuilding process, to lead, to guide, to teach, to instruct, to, to, to lead us down the, you know, it says in Psalms, lead, me, uh, lead, lead us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Does he want to take charge in that way? Yeah. Does he want to take charge of our actual thinking for us? No. Now, don't ever think that, uh, you know, or, or does he want to take charge of our decision-making for us? No. Father, I don't want to decide. You decide for me. Uh, I surrender my decision to you. You just choose, and I'll do it. Yes? He wants to teach us and lead us and equip us to make good decisions, but he doesn't want us to say, oh, you know, I'll, I'll just leave it in the Lord's hands. I don't have to decide anything. Excellent. Yes, Russell. What does scripture mean when it says take thought, take every thought captive? <laughs> take every thought captive to Christ. Yeah. So who's taking it captive? Yeah, yeah we're we're taking it captive. If, there's parents. If if you had a child, sent freshman, eighteen years of age, just went away to university for the first time. They're the, they're living in the dorm. How would you like it if uh, each morning you get a phone call at six a.m. as their alarm goes off and said, "Mom, Dad, I, I don't want to do anything to be a disobedient child. I, I want to be loyal. I want to be faithful. I want you to be proud of me, Mom and Dad." Uh, today it's a little foggy and cold, um, and I was thinking about going out with a sweater. But if you want me to wear a heavy coat, I'll wear a heavy coat. Just tell me which one to wear, and I'll do it because I want to be obedient and loyal and faithful. What would you write me? And and and, uh, and I was thinking about Wheaties for breakfast, but but they have this special. There's some eggs over at the over at the uh, cafeteria today. Is it okay if I eat eggs? But but maybe they're not good for my health. You tell me what to do, and and I'll be obedient. You just tell me. Is this what God wants us to do with Him, Father? You just tell me what to do. I'll do it. Just tell me. I'll follow and obey everything you tell me. Is that how He wants us to be? Is that is that what what is His goal for us to be? Or does he want us to learn so that we understand his methods, understand his principles? John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants because servants don't understand their master's business. He wants us to understand and appreciate and freely choose. Say, that makes sense. I, boy, I, I understand what's going on and I freely want to do what's in harmony with God's principles and will. Wendell. Through the Spirit is self-control. Self-governance. Yeah. The, you know, many people talk about how God's plan for their life. And I wonder about that as far as God's plan for our life. Doesn't he wish for us to have plans of our own life, but in, in 
um, the same cooperation or whatever with his character. Does, does it make sense what, what's being said? That God wants us to follow his leading, but where does he lead us but to the fruits of the Spirit, which is restoration of godliness within, that we are free sentient beings who have the ability to discern the right from the wrong, as it says in, 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 in Hebrews 5.14. And we have self-control and self-governance. Yes? Not only the Holy Spirit, like uh, power steering. You decide where to go, but the Spirit gives you power to do what you have chosen to do. Power steering. Did y'all hear that? That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, let me play the devil's advocate a little bit here. Um, there are times where even perfectly and godly you decide on a course of action, and the door closes. And you know, many times I've found myself praying to the Lord, open doors I should walk through, close doors I shouldn't. And sometimes he will guide you in a way that is not maybe your first choice, but your second or even your third choice of ways to go. You know, so, you know there, there are actual times that I've experienced in my life where I thought, oh yeah, this is perfect. Slam, door slams. And I think that's very reasonable because what you're describing now is not the uh, decision-making for which we have been given clear evidence and understanding of the principles involved and the the life. Uh, For instance, you don't pray every morning, you know, should I brush my teeth or not brush my teeth, Lord? Right. Okay. How do we know the difference? How do we know it's not, it's God working in our lives and not, not the enemy closing the door that would be actually beneficial. How do we know if it's God closing the door or the enemy? Yes. Well, if you're actually trusting God with outcomes, it really doesn't matter who's at work because God's going to bring about good out of it. When uh, Joseph got sold by his brothers into slavery because he stayed faithful and trusted God with outcomes, God turned that whole terrible situation within the family into something magnificent that was witnessed to the whole world for, for generations to come. Right? Absolutely. So the devil was using the evil, evil in the brother's heart to try and shut a door for Joseph, which actually ultimately worked out to open the door for Joseph to be where God wanted him to be. Now, some would say that he would not have achieved what he, what he achieved had his brothers not done that. Now, I don't necessarily believe that. I believe that you know they didn't have to perform, do that evil sin. No, you're right. They didn't have to. See, he still would have ended up somehow in the exact God has a thousand ways to bring about his outcomes that we have no idea about. And so I think when we trust him and are willing to fulfill our responsibility with the duties we understand, and we trust him with outcomes, the troubles we have is, uh, I've really gotten some insight into my own life in this in the last couple of years, is the things that beset people with the greatest worries and the greatest stresses and the greatest depression is they're trying to control how life turns out for themselves and for their kids and for their wives and for their family. They're saying, I want things to turn out this way. But we aren't responsible for that. Our responsibility is to govern ourselves in harmony with God's principles in any given circumstance and trust Him with how things turned out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to decide in governance of self, bow to the idol, not bow to the idol. They could control that. They could not control how it would turn out. And if they base decisions on how life will turn out, thinking, well, I'm in control whether I get burned in that, in that fire or furnace or not. That's my decision. No. Your decision is whether you bow to the idol or not. Nebuchadnezzar will decide whether he will have his men throw you in or not. God will decide whether he'll deliver you or not. You're not responsible for those decisions. You're responsible for what you will do in in governance of self in given circumstances. And I think we really get in trouble because we look down the road and anticipate my action will likely cause this series of events to turn out this way and I'll probably get in the fiery furnace and die so I better tie my shoe in the music place. I won't bow, I'll just tie my shoe. Okay? Yes. I was talking with a student this week. I think it's a blessing that in a sinful world we don't know the future with certainty. Yes. Because I think we would be to- so tempted to protect self that it, it would just be horrible. Yeah, Tim. All I was going to say is just that no matter what attack the devil brings on, like, you were, like he was trying to say, you know, how do we know whether it's God or Satan closing or opening the door? No matter what attack or what he brings into your life, the only way he can win is if you turn to self. Exactly. And, if, and when the attacks come, God can take adversity and, and have people, uh, because of the adversity, examine ideas that they never would have thought to examine before. All right, let's move on to Sunday's lesson. Yes. Uh, maybe, maybe they should have uh, bent over and just tied their shoelaces because just think of all those poor guards that had to die because of that and the women that became widows and the children that didn't have dads. <laughs> You see how one we can rationalize. See how we can do that. Yes. 
But, yeah. but in reality, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, when you read between the lines, that's, that's really what he was asking. He was saying, well, you know, I know you don't really believe this, but let's make it look good, you know. I mean, because he, he knew that the, the sure. those three young men weren't going to bow to the image, but he said, you know, like, yeah, your sandals unlaced, you know, do that, and, and, you, and I'll know you didn't bow, but everybody else will think you did. But that's the same thing at the end when they talk about about having having the mark of the beast in the head, the forehead, or in the hands. The majority of people actually have it in the hand. Satan wants to divert our our attention away from the realities of God's kingdom, His methods, His principles, and the universal uh, 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 principles of God's kingdom to ourselves and the here and now and what we're dealing with in these circumstances. Mar- uh, let's, Sunday's lesson, Mark 7, 21 through 23. For from within, the, the, from within, out of men's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Where did all that get in, in there from? I mean, it had to, in order to come out, it had to get in there. Where did it all get in there from? From where? Birth. Birth. We're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. So tracing it back, it got in there from breaking trust with God in, in Eden. And then we're born with this self-centered, me first. Uh, when, you, when you tend a garden, do you have to plant weed seeds in order to get weeds to come up in your garden? Now, they come up automatically, don't they? That's like our hearts. The evil thoughts and desires are constantly coming up without our trying. In order to make a garden produce fruit, you have to tend it to plant the good seed in. You have to pay attention when the little weeds come up to pull them when they're easy and small and it takes no effort whatsoever. When the temptations come into the heart, we pull them when they're easy and small, say no to them. It's easy to say no. But if we say yes and take that first hit of cocaine and that second hit and that third and, and so and we get into then that let that take root into our hearts and minds and neural circuitry, well, we can still get free at some point, but it takes a whole lot more effort to pull out a big old weed than it is to say no in the first place. Okay, so the primary problem. What is Christ describing here as the primary problem? Is it the behaviors or is it the evil in the heart that leads to the behaviors in this text? You notice that the primary problem is describing evil in the heart. Jesus says, in Matthew 23, 25, and 26. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Notice what he's saying. How do you get the outside clean? By cleaning the inside. By cleaning the inside. Do you notice how much of Christianity, however, and religions in general are not focused on cleaning the inside. It's focused on dealing with the outside. Things like getting your sins pardoned or paid for or punished in Christ or erased from the record books or having our records covered by the blood or ourselves covered in the robe. All these metaphors are focused on the behaviors, the acts, the things we've done. But do you know that every one of them is actually talking about cleansing the inside of the cup? That's what they're all about. I want to show you. When it says God doesn't remember our sins anymore, this is a uh, precious, precious passage to a lot of people thinking, when I get to heaven, no one will know all the stuff I ever did. Oh, they're hoping for that. Yeah. Uh, but what, what it's actually talking about? Their thing is talking about racing record books and things like, things like that. Well, Hebrews chapter 8, 10 through 12 says, This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. What's this talking about? Which part of the cup is being cleansed here? The inside of the cup is being changed. And then he goes on to say, I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their sins and wickedness and remember their sins no more. See, why does he remember no more? Because once he's cleansed the inside of the cup, when he looks at us, what does he see? He sees a cup that's cleansed. He sees a heart that's pure. He sees a law of love reproduced in. He doesn't see it because it's not in us anymore. That's why he doesn't remember it. That's why he doesn't think about it. Or covered in the robe of Christ's righteousness. Colossians 3.11. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. 
This is what it means to be clothed with the garments of his righteousness. What is, where's the, what's being cleansed here? The inside or the outside? Something being covered or something being changed on the inside? And notice the very next words after she says, um, this is what it, what it means to be clothed in the garment of his righteousness. Then, as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness. Why does he see it when he looks at us? Because it's reproduced within. This is what all the metaphors are about. Cleansed by the blood means to internalize Christ. Remember John 6, 54 through 57, where Christ said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. He's telling us we have to apply it to the internal workings of the heart. That's where we get cleansed. Or erasing sins means erasing sins from our uh, sinfulness from our character. Um, this is out of TSB 62. Remember your character is being photographed by the great master artist in the record books of heaven. As minutely as the face is reproduced on the polished plate of the artist, a photograph, so do the books of heaven. What do the books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern of Jesus Christ? Are you washing your robes of character and making them white in the blood of the Lamb? Do you understand what this is saying? What is it that's being recorded in the books of heaven? Is simply the perfect um, re- reflection of your character, what's in your heart. That's all. There's nothing going in there except what's in your heart. And as you put Christ in your heart, the records of heaven show perfect Christ-likeness in your heart. Or as Psalms 51 said, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. What is the scripture telling us? Where does the cleansing take place? Or the last one, I really love this one, pardon or forgiveness. This one so classically gets turned into some legal process. Listen to what what she says in um, Faith I Live by, page 129. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had the true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What is forgiveness? It's about transforming the inside of the cup. The whole thing, God's whole plan, is to take those of us infected with fear, selfishness, insecurity, deformed thinking, warped characters, and fix us on the inside so that we love him and love others more than self. Yes? Notice that even though that message is true about changing the inside, how do you respond to those who say, or she said, well, she didn't say it wasn't a judicial act, it's just not merely there has to be some component of a judicialness or a legal thing to that, correct? And then how would we respond to that? And the way I respond is by saying it is true that we could not have salvation slash forgiveness slash redemption if God were unforgiving, if God refused to forgive, if God was unwilling to pardon for the offense that we've done. The question is, was our salvation ever obstructed because of an unwillingness on God's part to forgive? Was that ever a barrier to salvation? So it does include God's pardon, God's forgiveness, but that was always a given. That was always on the table. That was always freely there. That was never the barrier. Christ didn't so come. The legal component is the forgiveness. Yeah. So yes. So so Christ didn't come in order to get forgiveness from God. He came because God was already forgiving in order to provide what was necessary for our salvation, transformation, regeneration of heart. So, yeah, there, I mean, you couldn't have it if God was un- unforgiving. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, good question. So, do our thoughts about God on this matter, this matter of whether it's about external taking care of penalties versus internal transformation, do what we think, we're talking about thoughts today, do our thoughts on this matter matter? Does it make a difference? Well, Some of you have heard uh, 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 me talk about a, a brain chemical, a brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It's, uh, it's, uh, brain-derived means it comes from the brain. Neurotrophic means it uh, makes the neurons strong. Think of it as fertilizer for your neurons. Now, when it's available, the neural circuits that have it will branch out and connect, and the brain will make new neurons uh, when this protein is available. When it's not available... Uh, the, the, the brain is not making new neurons and it is not branching out and connecting. Now, the interesting thing is that this protein comes off the DNA not as brain-derived neurotrophic factor, but as a precursor protein called pro-BDNF, pro-brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Now, while BDNF 
is fertilizer for the neurons. Pro-BDNF is weed killer to the neurons. If it hits an axon, it'll kill it. If it hits a dendrite, it'll kill it. If it hits a neural cell body, it will kill it. It'll open up calcium channels, calcium run, floods in, and the cell dies. So BDNF makes things stronger and grow. Pro-BDF withers things back and kills things. And it comes off the DNA as the weed killer. Now, what determines whether you get the weed killer or whether you get this fertilizer to make things stronger is what the presence of an enzyme, which will cleave pro-BDNF into BDNF and you get the fertilizer, things grow stronger. What determines whether that enzyme is there or not is the electrical activity of the neural circuit itself. If you're firing the neural circuit, it produces the enzyme, pro-BDNF is cleaved into BDNF, and the neural circuit continues to grow stronger. You recruit more neurons. Example I give, you're in high school taking your language class, maybe Spanish 101 or whatever it is, and you're brute force memorizing new words. As you're doing this, you're firing new, forming connections, causing the enzyme to be formed, causing pro-BDNF to be cleaved in BDNF. We'll recruit more neurons, more connections will happen. You keep practicing over time, you keep firing, you keep recruiting, you, the neural circuitry continues to expand. Maybe take two years of this in school, maybe take three years. Keep practicing, keep expanding, keep firing the circuit, and your syntax improves, your vocabulary improves. And then one day you graduate, and 20 years go by, and you haven't spoken the language for 20 years, You've stopped firing the circuit. The enzyme stops being produced. Pro-BDNF has been pruning this thing back for years. And 20 years go by, and you try to speak the language, and what happens? You've lost a lot, haven't you? Now, th- what I'm describing here is not a bad thing. This is extremely helpful that if you fa- stop firing a circuit, the brain will prune it back. This is how we change in character. This is how we get rid of old bad habits. This is how we get rid of thoughts and worries that used to haunt us because we stopped thinking about them. This is what it means about bringing thoughts into captivity. Now what gets interesting? They put people in scanners and they can actually see which, which brain areas light up and they'll put a, put a keyboard on their lap and ask them to play a piece of music. And they'll see which, which brain circuits light up while they're playing this piece of music. Then they take away the keyboard. They'll put little uh, tiny electrodes in the muscles of their arms so they can see whether there's any muscle contraction going on. And they ask them to imagine playing the same piece of music in their mind. But don't move any fingers. And sure enough, they can measure. No muscles are being moved. But the same neural circuits light up when they do it in their imagination. So they're still firing. What's, what does this mean? Bring every thought into captivity. We can take pedophiles. We can lock them into prison so that they don't act on this behavior. No sinful action is going on. Behavior. Can we control what they imagine? No. So if a pedophile spends 20 years in prison imagining all the horrible things that they'd like to do when they get out, they're still firing those same unhealthy neural circuits. Those neural circuits actually get stronger, and they will come out more of a recidivist pedophile than when they went in, if that's what they fire while they're in there. This is what it means to bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. Does it matter what we think about? Do our thoughts matter? Yes. This is what Christ is talking about when he talks about cleansing the inside of the cup. It's what it talks about from the, from the uh, inside of the man, all this evil and, and things come out. Um, so, with this in mind, does it matter what we watch on TV? Does it matter what we read? Does it matter what video games we play? Does it matter... Um, what God concepts we hold to and worship. Does it matter to the neural circuitry? You bet it matters. Can a person struggling with a terrible bacterial infection, they got a gash, it's infected, they got a terrible bacterial infection, high fever, sepsis, can they get well if they continue to rub manure into that wound? How about if they're taking high-dose antibiotics but every day rub more manure into the wound? Will they get well? No. Can a person who's struggling with anxiety, fear, irritability, confused thinking, self-doubt, moodiness, restlessness, find God's peace if they are filling their minds with worldly material? Can they do it? How about if they spend 15 minutes a day reading the Bible and having worship and the rest of the day filling their mind with worldly material? Will they find peace? No. Does it matter what we think about? Yes, it matters what we think about. Monday's lesson. It says, what are the things that really frighten you? What are the ways that you can learn to trust the Lord despite that fear? After all, isn't the Lord's power greater than whatever uh, threats you face? Red flag went up when I read this for me. Anybody else have a red flag pop into their mind instantly? Yes, I see some hands. Yeah, it almost sounds good on the surface. But it, 
How does this question, which almost sounds good, misdirect our thinking? This question misdirects our thinking. How? Yes. Power is not what chases away fear. Power is not what chases away fear. Was the question in the universal war ever over whether God has power? No, wasn't the question over, instead, his use of power. The question was not over, and in fact, in your faith relationship with God, has your real question ever been, oh, I wonder if God has power? Has that ever been your question? Has your, have you ever questioned, I wonder if he cares? I wonder if he, he's listening? I wonder if, if, if you know, isn't, isn't the question over his goodness? This is the question that has been raised in the universal war. Satan questioned the goodness of God, whether he cares, whether he has time, whether he's interested, whether, he, whether he'll bother with us. This is the question. It's never been over power. And, what, and, and we don't get peace by knowing God is powerful. We get peace by knowing his goodness and trusting him. Isn't that where the peace comes from? Yeah. Yeah, so it makes a big difference. Second paragraph is the story of a woman who died because a fortune teller told her that she was going to die on her 23rd birthday. And sure enough, she died because of fear uh, and belief in what the fortune told her, teller told her. The mind is powerful and what we believe can change us. And in the lectures I do sometimes, I go through many examples of how our beliefs have physical consequences on us, all, on a whole cascade of things. Question to you, though. In, in the aftermath of this story, if you read it, about this 23-year-old woman who died because a fortune told, teller told her she was going to die, what do you think about Ananias and Sapphira? What, what do you think they believed about God? Could their beliefs, could their beliefs about God played into the reason why they died? Did, did God come to a point with Ananias and Sapphira and say, I will never forgive Ananias and Sapphira. They, I, will, I will hold an unforgiving and judgmental heart toward Ananias and Sapphira. Is that what's God? In other words, did God ever close the door on his side of the equation that would have said, too late, Ananias and Sapphira, I will not accept a repentance from you. Do you think that ever happened? Do you think that ever happens for any sinner? Only for as long as they deserve. Oh, <laughs> do you, even for Satan, do you think God is, has an unforgiving heart towards Satan? Or he would love, if it were possible, which it's not, but if it was possible, wouldn't he have loved for Lucifer to have repented and returned to him? You see? So, do you think anything uh, in Ananias and Sapphira's death had to do with their concept of God? What was going on in their heart? Yes. Time may run out. Time may run out, meaning? Well, at some point, God is going to say, let everything continue as it is. Let the just remain just, let the unjust remain unjust, etc. I can do no more to change this because I've expended everything I can to prove my point, and they won't listen. Yeah, there, I like it. Time runs out because when we persist in our own way, rejecting truth, preferring self, denying the evidence, uh, we damage ourselves. The neural circuits we're talking about today, what you believe has power over you. You are firing a neural circuit. You're changing the, the, the faculties of your mind. And if you persist in unhealthy living, you persist in holding to lies, you persist in selfish behavior, over time, those circuits get stronger and stronger and stronger. And the circuits of perception, the circuits of discernment, the circuits of conviction of wrongdoing, the circuits that are sensitive to the movements of love and truth from the Holy Spirit, those circuits get weaker and weaker and weaker. And there comes a point in time when you can burn them out, sear the conscience with a hot iron, the Bible tells us, where no amount of truth and no amount of love will have any impact upon you. And you see this in multiple examples through history when those people who came to arrest Christ uh, had the miracle. The angel flashed. They fell down like dead men. Peter whacks off the ear. Jesus picked the ear up, puts it back on. Wow, they couldn't even see any of that evidence. Oh, let's arrest him and kill him anyway. Completely blind. No amount of evidence, no amount of truth will have an impact. That's when one says, no, no more I can do. They're beyond reach. Yeah. Is that sort of how you would see Achan or Korodath and Abiram as he stopped time for those kind of people? In other words, they've had opportunity. Is that a similar type situation as we see in the Old Testament, or is that different? 
You know, I see God stepping in in the Old Testament in many places in, in emergency situations to keep open the avenue for the Messiah to come. And sometimes he put people into the, into the grave to take them, so, quote unquote, out of time. But he didn't end their existence. You all know that. Nobody's existence is yet ended. They're just on pause. The righteous Adam, his existence is not ended. Seth, Daniel, rest in the grave until the resurrection. Their existence and the wicked who were put into the grave by, by God in the Old Testament are in the same place that Daniel is. They're resting. And when they come out of the grave, they come out of the grave with the same current of thought that they went in the grave. That's what I'm saying. I mean, they've had their opportunity to have a change of heart, but they will not have any more. Well, they will not have opportunity to do that. I mean, well, their decision has been made. It depends on what you mean by opportunity. My personal belief is, based on the reading of inspiration, that when Christ comes at the end of the thousand years, all the wicked dead are raised. Inspiration tells us the New Jerusalem is on the earth, the gates in the New Jerusalem are open. There's a period, they come up with the same current of thoughts they went in, and there's a period of time where the wicked go about building implements of war before they march on the city. This is what inspiration tells us, right? So think through that mental process. Here we have a time when the new Jerusalem, all the righteous, the angels, Christ are on the earth, the gates are open. Wicked are alive outside the new Jerusalem. Who's keeping them from coming in? Themselves. There's no angel guards there barring the way like to Eden. The gates aren't closed, but they still won't come in. You could call that an opportunity if you want. I, I, I don't know if it's an opportunity because I think the opportunity is closed because their minds are beyond reach. But God doesn't, the point is, God doesn't shut the gates to prevent them from coming in in repentance. What is shut is the faculties of their mind are so distorted, so bent, so warped that no amount of truth or light can reach them to bring them to repentance. So yeah, there's no real opportunity because they're beyond reach. Yes? Back to Ananias and Sapphira. This was not a specific requirement of God, was it? Everyone was giving things, so they decided they would too. Right. Once they had made that commitment, then their guilt sought to go. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think it was their guilt. I think it was their guilt and their confrontation. Are only shamans are only shamans able to put the voodoo curse death on somebody and have their mind be so disturbed that uh, that they can die from a mental distress? What do you think Peter was to these people? Wasn't he a powerful shaman? In, in most, we, they called him an apostle, but in most cultures he would have been called a shaman. He was a very powerful representative of the deity. He had performed miracles and all this other stuff. And he confronted them. It was a frightening experience for them. Boy, there's so many important things I wanted to get to in the lesson today about healthy Bible reading versus unhealthy Bible reading. How can we know the truth? I was going to give some principles of how can you discern uh, the truth from the error. And, there, and I've got a list of things. Um, maybe I should run through them really fast because there's ways to look at the Bible that, that, that will help your mind. There's ways to use the Bible that will actually close your mind. I don't think we have time to go through them. It's in the notes. It's in the notes. Let me close on this really fast. Wednesday's lesson in the first paragraph, talks about the truth that God knows the secrets of our hearts. And it says, does this truth make you nervous and fearful, or does it give you hope knowing that God knows the secrets of your heart? And does it make you nervous or, or fearful? And I asked the question, nervous or fearful, why would you be nervous or fearful for the Lord to know the secrets of your heart? If you're guilty of a crime, you've committed a crime, you're guilty, and you go before a judge... And if you are found guilty by that judge, you will be executed. This is what you understand is going to happen. Go for a judge. If I'm found guilty, I will be killed. Would you be nervous knowing you're guilty if you also believed he knew the secrets of your heart? If we set up Christianity, he's the judge. If you're guilty, he'll kill you. And he knows the secrets of your heart. If that's how you view, can you avoid nervousness? Unless you have someone standing between you and the judge so he can't see you. This is the classic teaching. Well, Christ stands because me the robe. He can't see I'm guilty. Sees Christ instead. Well, if you were dying of a terminal condition and you went to the doctor who specialized in curing your condition, would you be nervous about him seeing the secrets of your condition? See? How about if your condition was due to some behavior in which you were engaged? Say you were doing IV drugs and you've gotten an infection in your heart called bacterial endocarditis because of the IV drugs you were using and you went to the ER with a doctor who specializes in fixing heart problems, even endocarditis. Would you try to hide from him the problem or would you want him to know? 
David said, search me and see the wicked way in me, O Lord. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Understand God is your heavenly physician. He wants to heal and fix every broken thing in you. We don't need to be afraid of him knowing the secrets of our heart because he wants to fix and restore it. It's only when we have a distorted concept and see God in some punitive judicial manner that it incites fear in our heart. And that is part of Satan's strategy because he wants to keep us running from him instead of running to him. And I promise you, if you ended up getting bit by a rattlesnake, you would run to the ER. And God wants us to run to him so he can heal us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us all the evidence if we take time and look. Help our thoughts learn how to think and discern the right from the wrong. Send your Holy Spirit to strengthen those neural circuits of discernment and and good judgment and self-control. Give us the wisdom to avoid putting into our minds all these destructive things that that obscure and, and, and make murky our ability to understand the methods of your kingdom. May we not only know about the truth, may we begin to apply the truth so we can be participants, we can experience that transforming power of living the life of love, loving you and loving others. We pray in your holy name. Amen.